0: this is dark days radio episode number 83 i'm of course one of your hosts mike and tonight i'm joined by a stellar cast of folks first up of course is chig how's it going chig going great mike how you been doing awesome doing awesome thanks for asking and of course we're joined by our changeling the lost expert chris how's it going chris
1: hello uh good yeah um if Everyone knows what I've been doing, because last weekend was Dragon Meat, so, um, yeah, that's pretty much everything I've been up to.
0: Yeah, outstanding, outstanding. And of course, we're joined by a very special guest, uh, developer of Changing the Lost, second edition, Megan Fitzgerald. How's it going, Megan?
2: Good, how are you?
0: Awesome, awesome. So, just to kind of, like, kick things off here, I think we should kind of talk about uh, what kind of gaming everyone's been doing, because it sounds like everyone's been up to uh, quite a bit lately. Um Chris, of course, you were just at uh, Dragon Meat, and uh, what kind of games did you get in when you were over there?
1: Um, the only thing I ran was the uh, Vampire, the Masquerade 5th Edition uh, playtest, so the alpha, the rusted veins. So there was no changes to the rule set for that. That was um, essentially what everyone's played at Gen Con. Um, so there was myself and Matt Dawkins were running, um, you know, running games of that. It was really good. I think... Um, I have some ideas, some feedback I need to give to uh, Jason Carl and the uh, team at White Wolf on that one. But compared to the the one, you know, that was out before, it, it's a significant improvement. I think uh, it's um, it's going to be good stuff. There's a lot going on at Dragon Me. It's a very much more tabletop RPG convention rather than say board games and war games like say uh, UK Games Expo. So. Or, say, Salute, which takes place in London, which is very much definitely war games. Uh, but obviously, um, you know, chatted to a few people. You know, the guys from Modiphius, people from Cubicle 7. So, you know, line up some exciting interviews in the future, like our favorite Warhammer fantasy roleplay, which they released the cover for recently, mm. the uh, new fourth Edition. So, yeah, it was good stuff.
0: I'm really excited to see how uh, uh, Warhammer... Fantasy Roleplay 4th Edition is going to come out because 3rd Edition was a, a vast departure, uh, which I know, Chris, you aren't a huge fan of, but I was actually very interested in. So uh, I'm pretty excited to see how they're going to synthesize all the ideas while still keeping that sort of like uh, Warhammer 1st Edition overall like, grittiness that uh, they really want to get back to. So yeah, that should be cool.
1: Yes, definitely. Um, And then the other gaming I've been up to is uh, I finally started my Kingdom Death 1.5 campaign, so that involves all the upgrades since I um, got that little black box that upgrades the very, very big black box. So my mates who've been playing it said there's some interesting comparisons with um, uh, D&D FIFED. So they say it's very cool how... The turn sequence is all about you, know, you as players not just acting in initiative order like you would in a traditional role play you're kind of all working together to find the the best combo of actions to do the best attack so that's gone over oh, yeah. quite well and obviously if you're into horror you know it caters to that kind mm-hmm. of crazy level of horror body horror i think it'll be i think hands down when i next run changeling Biticules might make a kind of cameo, a type of spider-like creature like that, because he's he, he kind of fits that kind of uh, thing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, Megan, what kind of gaming have you been up to? Uh, I've heard from a little bird that you might have been at the inaugural PAX Unplugged.
2: Yeah, I was at PAX Unplugged and I spent basically that entire convention running Changeling Lost demos. Um, It went really, really well. It was great to see so many people were so excited about the game and people had some really great creative ideas. Um, The demo was just a lot of fun to run.
0: Cool. And have you been doing any other gaming uh, other than that? Or was that uh, taking up a lot of your time as well as the uh, Kickstarter that we're going to be talking about today as well?
2: Yeah, uh, well, it has been taking up a lot of my time, but, um, but I do, uh, every few weeks, I run a chill game every once in a while, uh, I play oh. in a Mage the Awakening game every once in a while, and in a Doctor Who game using the Fate system.
0: Oh, very cool, very cool. And, Chick, have you been doing any gaming yourself lately? Uh, not as much as I'd
3: like, of course. Um, there was Board Game Geek Con here recently um, that had fun played some board games. Didn't spend near as much money as I thought I was going to, but, you know, it was still fun, still exciting. Got to demo some stuff. And uh, my normal group, unfortunately, we haven't really been able to get together here too much recently um, due to illnesses and injuries and, you know, just
0: no fun. Understood. It happens sometimes. And uh, for myself, I've been doing a, a little bit of gaming. Uh, in fact, I was at PAX Unplugged myself, where I ran a game of Dark Ages Mage, uh, which is very exciting, very fun. And uh, the players really got into the magic system overall, uh, which was pretty cool. And uh, they picked up the entire system very fast and really worked together, uh, not just to you know make their own complex spells, but also worked together between the, different, the characters and fellowships uh, to... Uh, kind of combined their magic in ways, which uh, was pretty cool to see as well. So that was uh, super successful. And as most mage games end, uh, they just started arguing about what to do with the evil entity and artifacts that they had just found. Some people wanted <laughs> to use them to save the city. Other people just wanted to get the heck out of there. So the uh, the hubris was, uh, was strong amongst them, uh, which is pretty cool to see. And just as a quick announcement, Darker Days is going to be changing around its numbering formatting coming up here in the new year. The reason for this is because, you know, we've been doing the show for almost nine years now, and there's a lot of different things. We've got the Darker Days podcast, we have Darklings, Gossip Ghouls, and other such kind of side spinoffs that have occurred, uh, as well as Network Zero, which is now part of our main feed. So the numbering is going to be changed so that everything has a consistent numbering from one to uh, about 162. Uh, piece of content at this time, uh, so you're going to find that the new formatting is going to be the episode number, episode title, and then parentheses the series title, which may will be uh, Dark Days Radio, Darkling Podcast, Network Zero, etc. And this will help uh, just kind of clean things up for uh, new listeners, but it won't affect uh, existing listeners at all. All of the previous uh, URLs will stay the same, and. Uh, Uh, podcatchers will not have to uh, re-download anything, so that will all remain the same. Just wanted to give you guys a quick heads up. So I think uh, with that, let's uh, just kind of move straight into the uh, interview portion of this and uh, talk a little bit about Changeling the Lost 2nd Edition. So uh Megan, thank you for joining us here, of course. And uh you know, just to kind of kick things off, you know, do a little bit of an icebreaker, uh do you wanna kind of establish some of your, you know, geek street cred a little bit, you know, talk about some of the games you developed and uh other work you've done and maybe other some, some other like cool stuff.
2: Um so let's see. Uh development wise, I'm obviously I'm co developer for Changing the Lost Second Edition with Rose Bailey. Um, I'm also one of three co-developers for Dark Eras 2, along with Matthew Dawkins and Monica Valentinelli. Um, And I'm currently developing the Hundred Devils Night Parade and Adversaries of the Righteous, um, the two monthly release books for Exalted 3rd Edition, uh, the Bestiary and the Book of Antagonists. Um, so development-wise, that's what I'm doing. Um, hmm. Let's see. I've worked on seven of the 11 current Chronicles of Darkness lines, um, plus the core uh, 12 if you count Dark Eras as its own line, and a few of the classic World of Darkness lines as well, uh, including Werewolf 20 and Vampire 20 Dark Ages. And I've worked on other Onyx Path lines, uh, including Scion and Cavaliers of Mars. Um, and I've also done some work for John McPresents Presents on Seventh Sea um, for Growling Door Games and for Green mm-hmm. Renee on Modern Age.
0: Excellence, yeah. Seventh C is uh, very exciting. I just picked up the core book myself, and I'm really uh, dying to dig into that because uh, it's just a fun setting and just a, a fun concept uh, for for games.
2: Yeah, Seventh C is a lot of fun.
0: Absolutely, and I think the uh, the good, keen follow up question to uh, to all of that is: Which of Darkness games have you not de- uh, developed or worked on? Because you mentioned that there were four missing, I believe.
2: Yeah, there's four I have not worked on at all. Um... Uh, Forsaken, Werewolf of the Forsaken, uh, Mummy, Geist, and Demon.
0: Ah, interesting. Okay. Cool. I think that really uh, establishes it. So, uh, of course, we're here to talk about Changing the Lost 2nd Edition, the really cool Kickstarter that's going on right now, which uh, is is very exciting. It's the first 2nd uh, Edition book to be getting its own Kickstarter after having, you know, a 1st Edition line previously for Chronicles of Darkness beforehand, of course, uh, Beast demon and mummy were all brand new games coming out uh that didn't have this sort of a legacy line establishing them so it's pretty cool to see this being a, a prestige book coming out a deluxe version i should say and uh yeah it's it's been a very cool kickstarter thus far with a lot of stretch goals and all of that um i think because of that uh you know chick you've got a good question here just about how second edition and first edition kind of relate and uh how how that development kind of occurred for this
3: Right. I mean, there was a there was a first edition. Obviously, since this is the second edition, something has come before. Uh, so, what, if anything, uh, has been incorporated from the first edition source books into the second edition core book?
2: Um, I would say so. In general, a lot. Uh, we we didn't actually drastically change too much because first edition changeling um, was just a. a beautiful, amazing game. And uh, we didn't feel like there was a ton that needed changing because it was just so good. <laughs> um, really, we didn't uh, we just kind of re- refined some aspects of it and we added to it. Um, setting wise, uh, we've got the dreaming roads, which are a refinement and an exploration of kind of how fairy is connected to human dreams and why the gentry even bother to wander around in human dreams and what they want there. Um, so that was something we added and uh, just sort of a refinement of some of the concepts of what what the weird is, what Arcadia is or used to be. Um, and of course, Goblin Det and Goblin Queens, uh, which are my personal favorite thing that got added for second edition. Uh, but pretty much, I mean, I think most of what was there in first edition is still recognizably there.
0: Awesome. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the cool things that uh, really came out of the first edition source books was uh, an expansion of how changelings were able to uh, kind of be created and and interact with the hedge originally. Because, you know, with the first edition core book, it was very much focused on being stolen by the uh, gentry. Whereas as you kind of expanded, uh, as you mentioned, there were like the Goblin Queens and that sort of a, a concept. Uh, and there was also a lot of people that more just kind of wandered into the hedge and might not necessarily have been interacting keenly with the gentry, but still had that same sort of supernatural trauma as their background. And that's how they became the Lost themselves. Uh, I think that's a great thing to kind of add in with the uh, first edition of the source books and also carry over into, uh, into second edition
2: yeah and uh, we've got the fay touched, um which are a little bit like that. they're they're not full on changelings, but they're people who um, made a promise to a changeling to I'm sorry, made a promise to someone who would then go on and become a changeling, and they got drawn into the hedge looking for that person feeling sort of that promise tugging at them, um and then wandered around in the hedge on their own and um, kind of got got a little bit of that fey magic uh, instilled in them. So that's pretty cool. And we do anticipate having a hedge book that'll go a lot more into all of that too.
1: Yeah, because there's some from having looked over the, the preview material, there's a lot of um, things that come off the back of games that come later after changing. So um, things I've seen, which we got a hint of, uh, say in, um, it seems like everyone, one, of, one book everyone seems to love, which is also uh embedded itself now within Chronicles of Darkness was um the Book of the Dead, which came out after Geist. So now we've got a bit more detail in the new Changeling core about how ghosts interact with the hedge, what type of roads there are, if they are you know, how you get from the hedge even into the underworld. And and so it's gonna be fun seeing how that is more baked in because then it allows a lot more of some of the interesting crossovers that were hinted at, like the the, the contracts of death and the pledge that happens when a, a changing first enters the underworld. So um, it's going to be really good to see that that work now, as I say, it's baked in and and from that point expanded on. Because we also have like hedge ghosts, uh, 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 something new that's been added in. Yeah. Mm. so um where where what what are hedge ghosts because there's there's something quite quite new I don't think we even saw those in in second edition I think I can't even remember them ever being hinted at so so um what what can you briefly say about hedge ghosts
2: sure yeah hedge ghosts are brand new um they are well, they could be they could they could come out of a lot of things a lot of times they are sort of bits of souls or bits of emotions that have gone into the hedge one way or another, um, whether it's from someone who died in the hedge, and it's sort of like what you'd expect from what a ghost is only infused with fey magic, or whether it's, uh, you know, somebody's icon or a shred of their soul that became a hedge ghost, or just somebody's really strong emotion um, that got out of hand and became a hedge ghost, or I mean, there's there's really... It's kind of a an umbrella term for weird ephemeral beings that live in the hedge and feed on emotion.
1: Yeah, and that's I think that's great because when I was talking to Dave Brooks about you know the work he did with 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 the ghosts and how that relates with mage and and with geist and so forth, it's it's a, an expansion again on the idea that not all ghosts are technically of things that were once humans there as you say it's a shred of a person or it's an idea but it has it's ghostly in some manner like it's something forgotten or or lost um so that's pretty cool and I guess that leads us into the next big question because there is one other there's one other particular entity within the hedge which is quite new to the game uh is these huntsmen who are apparently natives to the hedge so what are they and how do they relate to the other entities that exist in the hedge and in arcadia because well of course we've got we've got changelings we've got the fey we've got hobgoblins and now we have these huntsmen so so what are huntsmen
2: sure um actually huntsmen are natives to arcadia and this is one of the one of the things i love most about the huntsmen um is that they have these hazy origins as pre-gentry arcadian denizens so they were there in Arcadia before the gentry even arrived. And Okay. Uh, yeah. And and so uh the gentry, as they do, um kind of took them over. They decided, well, these beings here are tools for my use. Uh and so what happens is um the gentry kind of take a huntsman and they rip out the huntsman's heart and place it with themselves, with their title, a piece of themselves. Um and then they send that being out into the world to go and recapture changelings. And they're sort of part of uh, this concept, of the wild hunt. And technically, the term the wild hunt refers to a large-scale intrusion of fae forces uh, that come into the world and maybe besiege a freehold or, or hunt down an entire um, court or something like that. But changelings use the term wild hunt also to refer to, to the huntsmen, but more broadly, the idea that... There's this constant threat lurking around every corner of recapture and then you're never going to fully escape that that threat is always there and you always have to look over your shoulder Um, and the huntsmen are really the face of that threat They're They're sort of the edge of the gentry's sword, you know, intruding into the real world and coming after you.
1: it's interesting yeah. when you say that they they they're the original denizens of the of Arcadia because that that hints to stuff that we saw in some of the later books that came out for Changing because Changing as a line was so as you say was so popular it spawned even more books than than was originally intended because people just gobbled it up. So um, and we kind of get that sense that you know the gentry are kind of that can be the evolution of changelings as their weird increases and they become more fey and alien in that sense and, and uh so I'm sure I'm sure I'm not saying you have to sell us anything There's is a spoiler alert so, uh, and things you can't say but it's going to be interesting how what you've said there will also tie with what we know from well or what may tie with mage and the Arcadia of the supernal realms and so forth it's um there's some fun stuff which I'm sure will come out in later books.
2: Yeah, yeah, but I, we have, we have some thoughts, but I'm not going to talk about them. <laughs> of course,
1: of course, I'm sure there are definitely thoughts on that. As you said, you mentioned icons, I can't remember if they were a thing in, in first edition, and I quite like that idea of that, that shred of your soul as a, as a fae, as you escape Arcadia, and you leave something in the hedge, and it's, how the, the, the how it manifests can be quite Interesting, whether it's like a shard of like crystal or it's a small trinket that represents, say, I don't know, a child's teddy bear, because that's your favorite teddy bear that you you had before you were taken. And that it's a and these icons are like memories or, or emotions that you had before you were taken. So that's kind of um, again it's I like those kind of weird trinkets and dinguses that you can have in Changeling. It's like you've got so many weird kind of fairy tale items. And then um, the thing is, there, there was one other thing which I, I think you you uh, you mentioned that um, if you I wonder if you can expand on that is why the fae come to our dreams because you mentioned how your the the rules and the setting kind of mesh the hedge with the with the with dreams a, a lot more and kind of uh, how how we're changing kind of works fey magic within dreams so so what what kind of things why do why do the fey come into our dreams and torment us and cause nightmares and and so forth what is the fey are desperate to take from humanity
2: yes we we actually had a few conversations about this and one question that came up was is it is it that they're actually eating dreams because we know they feed on our emotions right so are they eating our dreams um and the the decision we made was that they're not really eating dreams wholesale uh, because then if you eat dreams, then humans stop. Uh, The Fae don't want that. Um, What they want is to come into your dreams and to take things for themselves. So they can come into your dream and say uh, say you're dreaming about, I don't know, uh, riding on a bus, right? And you've got your your backpack there or something. And um, the the fae think, wow, this backpack is really meaningful. It means something. I'm going to take it with me and it's going to become something for me. Or, you know, and it it represents some idea or even just an abstract idea. They come into your dreams and they say, wow, you're dreaming about jealousy. I'm taking that jealousy. I really like it. I'm going to make it into a crown and I'm going to wear it. Um, And so it's sort of that uh, pieces of humanity, of emotion and idea and thought that really intrigue them. And they want to claim that for their own.
1: Okay, cool. And then how does that relate with nightmares? Because in first edition, the Fae were able to create, like, nightmares that spawned and uh, and grew from one person's nightmare and and kind of then grow and plague other people. So um, is that related to how the Fae kind of get humans to create these things in their dreams that they then come back and take at a later date?
2: Sure, it could be. And we actually are probably going to go into dreams and the dreaming roads and all of that kind of stuff a lot more in a later supplement. Um, but uh, one of the sample true Fae in the book actually is um, an exile who, uh, because of the various um, complicated, you know, weird related rules that govern this phase exile and the conditions under which he can come back to Arcadia, he has to get, I think it's 100, 100 madmen dreaming in concert. I think oh, that's right. it. And, uh, and so he has to get everybody sort of dreaming the same nightmare. And once they're all dreaming the same nightmare, uh, he can make his, his grand return to Arcadia. That's um, just one example. But oh, wow. uh, yeah, there's, there's definitely room for, um, for nightmares and creating nightmares and, and all that kind of thing.
1: Oh, he's a perfect antagonist even for Hunter. Then, excellent. <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You can imagine those type of those people dreaming. Those would also could be, you know, they're great like slashers. Even like the the whole idea that you've got, a, you know, it could be a. It looks like serial killers, but well, a serial killer, but they're all different people, but they've got the same modus operandi because they've got the same nightmare. And oh, wow, that's that's something definitely to uh, have fun with. Anyway, Mike. Yeah,
2: that's really. Cool. Oh, sorry.
1: Yeah, um, Mike, if you want to carry on with um with playtest, yeah. because I've I've gone on too much about setting, I could carry on all night. <laughs> I mean, we could definitely <laughs> we could talk about the setting quite a
0: bit because uh, it's just a lot of fun. But uh, I think Megan, you know, kind of just to to round things out here, you know, changing uh, the last second edition's been going through tons of playtests, very rigorous, and obviously, you know, you were just at Packs Unplugged playtesting quite a bit, and I was curious if uh, you know during this whole process of develop, developing this book was there like a particular moment that really stood out for you and made you say like, yes, this is, this is changing the lost. And this is like really the improvements we wanted to make here in the second edition.
2: I'm not sure if I say there was one moment, but just in general, like when I was running the the demos at PAX Unplugged, I was really happy to see how invested everybody got in. So there was a character who was a loyalist trader had, had been part of the Motley um, and had betrayed them and then had been captured by a huntsman. And so Uh, I was really, really interested to see how everybody kind of got really invested in discussing, you know, the the ethics of the situation and, you know, what this guy deserved and what they were going to do about it. Um, You know, he was he was a traitor, but he was also one of them. And my favorite thing about this and the thing that really jumped out to me as being like, yes, this is what I wanted out of second edition changeling was that every group had their own completely different, unique creative ways of handling the situation. Um, they, they, one group, uh, I mean, they relied a lot on pledges, some of them, some of them relied a lot on um, reaching out to their freehold and their, their, uh, their autumn queen. Some of them um, tried some trickery or, or other things and, and they just all had something different that they wanted to try. Uh, one group got the huntsman to play a game of charades with them, Um, one group, uh, forged like friendship oaths with everybody there, including the hobgoblin. Um, and to me, that experience was exactly what I wanted out of changeling, that each changeling and each motley kind of finds their own way in this messy, scary, terrifying world they live in. And they have to get creative because they're up against their own demons all the time. Um, and they're empowered by their, their situation, by being a changeling to turn around and say, no, no not going to let those those demons um, conquer me. And they all do it in different ways. So you make deals and you find loopholes and um, you define lines that you will and won't cross. And uh, just all of that was a very changeling experience for me.
0: Yeah, that's really awesome to hear. One of the things that I've always really loved about uh, changing of the Lost is the uh, concept of the privateers. They're not really loyalists exactly, but they tend to be sort of uh, rogue agents and and changelings that are perhaps working for now the huntsmen or uh, the gentry themselves and kind of in this almost secret police situation where they're giving up other people to keep their own safety. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's very interesting to hear about how people were interacting with a loyalist in uh, in the demo games. That's pretty cool.
2: Yeah. Yeah. He was a privateer actually. Loyalist is kind of an umbrella term um, and there's true loyalists and bridge burners and uh, privateers are all sort of, different kinds of lowercase l loyalists
0: yeah that really ramps up the tension then because uh did he just just to ask did he previously like give someone up from the motley or someone from the court
2: Mm -hmm. yeah he tried to sell the motley back he tried to betray them and set a trap for them
0: Ooh, yeah that's a lot (laughs) of tension there very interesting wow cool so uh chris you want to move on over to the uh, the rules a little bit and some of the kind of new mechanical changes that we're seeing here with the second edition
1: yeah um so megan the one of at uh, the core concept i guess for for what defines changelings is how they perceive i guess reality and magic around them because uh their creatures t- they're people touched by the fey um and so they they both in danger of of either becoming lost in dreams and, and lost in fae magic and losing touch with with the mundane reality but also at the same time like if they become too engrossed or at least too caught up in mundane things that also hurts them and how they perceive the world around them so how have you updated clarity because one of the things i saw is that clarity is now is a health track and i was trying to get into my head how this compares to say humanity system in Requiem. So, Really, just how did you come across you know, how did you decide this was how clarity is going to operate in this game, um and how that helps reinforce the concepts of what clarity is within the game?
2: Sure. Um so we yeah, we discussed clarity a lot and we had a couple of iterations as we went along on how it worked and what it really was. Um and what we settled on was that well, clarity is definitely about perception. Um it goes deeper than the ability to tell truth from lies. And I say truth from lies and not fantasy from reality because um, it's it's the ability to believe your own truth and to say, "Look, these are my experiences. These happen to me, and I get to define what those are because uh, you know on the one hand it's it's really less about um, balancing the two sides of yourself and more about your own life from those two sides. So you know, the Fae used deception to convince you to doubt what you know and you know, say, no, your feelings are, are a lie or no, your perceptions are wrong and here's what reality really is. And then on the other hand, um, the mundane human world wants you to believe that fairies and magic don't exist, right? And clarity is your ability to say to both of those fictions, no, I'm defining what my reality is, what I remember, what I know, and what has happened to me those are my experiences and I own them. Um, and so that, that's really what clarity is about. And so the reason it's a health track, uh, we didn't want losing clarity to feel like something that was permanent, that defined you. Um, because, because, you know, what happens to you is not who you are. Right. And so we wanted clarity to be a little more, um, of, a, of an active thing that you as a character could take some control over. And so the idea of clarity loss as damage that can be healed is really important. Um, so that's kind of where, where we got that from.
1: Cool. Okay. Yeah. I, I think that that's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a definitely different field to say how humanity operates um, um, where, you know, the things that you do really do define uh, the erosion of your, Of your soul and how you interact with people whereas as you say with with changelings it's it's almost like a i guess a, a mental fortitude about being against others telling you what is and what isn't real um so with clarity being that um how about pledges so because i you know the first edition rule set for for pledges which were basically these um oaths and and um promises that changelings make and then seal with the weird and they could see it and they could you know oh instill upon them certain benefits and banes if they're kept to or broken um how have you updated the pledge system because i i you know for one running changeling, i found the pledge system was fun it, you know it was a nice way of getting benefits and 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 doing simple things about using contracts but at the same time it could end up being quite clunky to use on the fly in a game because you had to kind of almost make a you know make a recipe as it were for the pledge so um yeah what kind of things have you done to update that streamline it and tie it into say the condition system that chronicles darkness now uses
2: sure um so uh pledges and pledges and some some of the other parts of the setting, too, and some of the other rules um, play into the idea that we've defined a little bit what the weird actually is. Um, what the weird is really kind of a universal force of exchange. And so that's why a lot of the sort of metaphysics of Changeling work. Uh, and the reason that pledges work is because if somebody gets something or they promise something, um, then the weird is there to uphold the other side of that to say, well, if you get something, then you pay something in return. Or if you make a promise, then you uphold that promise because you said you were gonna do it. And that's kind of what the weird is. It's that force that makes sure that those exchanges happen. So um so the pledges play into that and and so imagine that you're a fake creature, right? And you're you're a changeling, and this is the way that your magic works, and you are partially powered by this force, right? So if you if you gain something or if you make a promise is going to make sure that the other end of that is upheld. And so changelings want to be able to define the terms of that exchange themselves rather than leaving it in the weird's hands because nobody (laughs) wants that. Um, And so that's kind of where where pledges come in. Pledges are a way for changelings to kind of take control of the weird and say, all right, if these exchanges and these deals and promises are going to be upheld one way or the other, I want to be able to define what they are. Um, and uh, so there's three types of pledges. We've got ceilings, um, oaths, and bargains. And uh, we sort of streamlined those um, by way of giving them each their own. This. So a sealing is when somebody says something and you seal their statement and hold them to it, even if it's, you know, they don't know that they're that they're really making a promise. They're just saying something offhand, um, you know, like. Somebody gets really angry and they, they say, I'm going to kill you. Well, if I seal that statement, then I guess you better kill them because uh, because if you don't, the weird will conspire to make that happen somehow um, or to punish you for not upholding the thing you said you were going to do. So that's sealings. Um, An oath is more mostly changelings and true fae. Huntsmen can make oaths, but they can't initiate them. Um, and an oath is much more of a um, sort of a long-term commitment to a particular idea. And the terms of that oath are something that you as the player and as the character create when you make the oath. But then um, if you break the oath, you get the oath breaker, I think it's called oath breaker condition. Um, so, and those oaths are pretty much forever. Even if they're broken, that oath was still made. It's just that the context of it is now different, right? So uh, so if you make an oath with someone, then you're connected to them one way or another. Um, and then bargains are sort of that Rumpelstiltskin deal where you go to a human being or some other non-changeling being and you say, all right, I'm going to do this this task for you whatever it is, and it doesn't have to, and it could be a mundane task. It could be, I'm going to you know, file all your reports for you, but it could be something else. Um, it could be something that that person couldn't do on their own, like you know, like the Rumpelstiltskin story, where you're sitting there with this pile of straw and you have to turn it into gold, and that's ridiculous, but this changeling says, yeah, I can do that, no problem, um, and in return, you'll do something small for me, and the act of making that bargain helps to protect the changeling from, from the notice of the Fae and the Huntsman. Um, it helps to sort of let them blend in a little bit more into the human world. And so each of the pledges that we have kind of has its own narrative purpose. Mm.
0: Yes. And I think that's a great, uh, great addition to the game. You know, the kind of enhancement for the safety of the uh, the changelings themselves. Um, Chig and I uh, talk quite a bit about the Dark Ages Fae game that came out for the uh, classic World of Darkness. And one of the uh, kind of issues with that game was that there was no reason for these fey to really be interacting with mortals. They did have these sort of oaths and pledges, but they didn't have many mechanical benefits or really uh, a purpose for the Fae to uh, leave their own sort of otherworldly politics. So it's very good to hear that, uh, you know, here in Change of the Laws*, especially in second edition, that uh, there's a real keen reason for the, uh, the Laws themselves to be interacting with the mortal world.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things this is not just for Changeling, but for all of the second edition Chronicles games, um, there's a push to really have the game reflect what it's really like to be one of these characters and what that experience is and what they actually do all day. Um, so I think, yeah, I think that that's kind of where that came from, too. Uh,
0: we also had a question from one of our listeners, uh, Ignacio Sato, uh, he was asking if we can expect expanded rules for tokens and their creation in a future source book.
2: I I would think that's very likely.
0: All right, cool. <laughs> um, actually, it might be good, uh, uh, Megan, just kind of mention some of the cool like stretch goals and uh, new source books that uh, we're expecting with the uh, Kickstarter.
2: Sure. Um, the two big major things, uh, well, three really. So there's the set of seasonal novellas, um, which are a stretch goal, and then we've got the Kith and Kin book, uh, which is sort of a, A player's guide with a lot of new kits in it, as you can see from the stretch goals, each of the kits is themed, uh, not each of the kits, I'm sorry, each of the categories of kits um, is themed around one of the contract regalia. And then uh, we've also got the companion, which currently has um, entitlements, which we could not fit in the course, so that's why that's there uh, from first edition, and then um, courts and freeholds.
0: Excellent, very nice.
2: Yeah. And actually uh one we're hoping that one of the things that will be included in the companion as well will be tokens and that's probably uh where we might get into um how to design your own.
0: Chig, did you have any questions about uh development overall?
3: Uh yeah. Um what did you find, Megan, to be the uh the most challenging aspect uh, of developing uh Changeling the Lost? Uh, you've worked on the other game lines as you've said, but every project must have its own special quirks and things that come up. So what was, what, what came up, what was the most challenging or most fun aspect?
2: I guess really just, uh, and this is probably not unique to Changeling, but obviously when first edition Changeling was out, you know, that was sort of an, um, an early game. And uh, even now, like we're, we're pretty far into the second edition of Chronicles of Darkness now. So incorporating everything that's that's been done since the beginning was something we wanted to make sure we did. You know, we wanted to make sure that it really fit into the the Chronicles of Darkness as a whole. Um, and so there was a lot of discussion about that and um, sort of what we were going to incorporate. And also, honestly, uh, on a much more practical note, just not having enough work count to do everything we wanted to do in the core. Um sure which is which is sort of part of that like we wanted to incorporate everything, everything from all of those supplements from first edition and all the cool ideas that the writers had and um, everything that we wanted to include and there just was not space uh, so that was tough figuring out sort of what what to put in the corn, what to leave until later was a difficult decision.
3: Got it, got it and you you mentioned there um, you wanted you know how to, how to, how does it fit in with the rest of the uh, the chronicles of darkness. Is there a lot of crossover material in the uh, in the the book so far, or is there any crossover material in the book so far?
2: Um, so not a lot. There's there's a few sort of vague mentions. There's not any real crossover. Um we really need all of the Chronicles core books to stand on their own. Sure. Uh so um and you know like I said we didn't have we didn't have a ton of space either. So we wanted to make sure that we had Changeling as a standalone game um that stood by itself on its own. But there are a couple of sidebars that sort of obliquely reference uh some of the other things because we wanted to leave that door open and obviously we have the Contagion Chronicle coming up um, pretty soon that, uh, you know, is going to really dig into that crossover stuff. And also all of the Dark Eras 2 eras are at least two game lines. Uh, Some of them are three um, that have crossover as well. And so we wanted to make sure that we left the door open, but we also didn't want to spend a lot of, uh, a lot of word count on it in the core. So there are just a couple of references. Okay,
0: cool. Cool. Uh, Do we have anything else we wanted to discuss on uh, changing the lost or should we move on to some other stuff?
1: I think we've covered the main things. I think I think the main, you know, the big main rule changes uh, I think we've covered, like the rest of it is, you know, having looked through it's, um, it's as you would expect from a Chronicles of Darkness update to the first edition. And I think in many respects, it cleaves quite closely to the first edition and it's, you can see where there's refinements that are for, you know, which Chronicles of Darkness allows for. Um, and as I said, like, there's a, you can see where it meshes with with certain things or things that were hinted are in there so I think I think there aren't going to be there aren't massive surprises on my part from reading it but there's definitely things that make you go oh I'm really glad that's that's in there now
0: yeah and actually just a side note compared to the first edition the second edition that we've read thus far through the uh you know kickstarter manuscripts is a lot more accessible I feel for players uh just from like restructuring reformatting and some uh you know new additions to how you're writing it the uh the player material the front facing stuff is a lot more up front and you don't have to slog through uh several dozen pages of uh setting material just to uh, get to like the nitty-gritty of like how to make your character and that sort of thing so just from a functional standpoint i think second edition is a great improvement so that's pretty uh pretty handy as well cool so moving on from uh changing the lost uh Megan, you, of course, mentioned all this uh, great work you've done on the other Chronicles of Darkness and World of Darkness game lines. And uh, I think, you know, here at Darker Days, we're very excited to hear just a little bit, you know, some teasers maybe about the uh, new Half-Damned sourcebook for Vampire the Requiem. Uh, We're very excited with uh, A Thousand Years of Night, and uh, we're hoping to get Danielle here on the show to talk about that a little bit in the future. Um, But... You know, if you could tell us a little bit about the, uh, you know, the new Vampire Source book and what you worked on with it, and maybe kind of uh, indicate, you know, some of the challenges maybe uh, for switching between your kind of changeling voice and uh, your vampire voice uh, would be, you know, really cool and insightful.
2: Uh, So for Half Damned, I wrote about half of the Dampier chapter, Um, the rules and the storytelling guide and... um mostly mostly those and uh and some of the sort of what it's like to grow up as a dampier um information and uh that was a lot of fun i really enjoyed writing that i had a lot of fun doing the rules in particular i thought writing you know new powers and new um sort of interesting uh story hooks and stuff like that for dampier was was really fun um as far as switching voices uh so so one thing is that you know that book came out recently but i actually worked on it um quite a while ago and so uh so the the proximity of when i was working on it it was actually kind of a a little while ago so i don't remember a ton of details um just of the, the process itself but uh in general switching voices i actually really enjoy switching voices between game lines um I think it, it really helps the creative juices keep flowing when I can work on something that's sort of new and different and change gears. Uh, it keeps me on my toes, too. Um, I find music helps a lot. I actually have a, a separate playlist for every game that I've ever worked on that I use uh, ah. sort of to to get back into that mindset whenever I work on that game. So, um, yeah, but I enjoy it.
0: Nice. Cool. Chick? Uh
3: Yes. Um Listener, Chris Hanforth uh, would like to know: uh, What Dark Eras two setting are you most excited about, and uh, which stretch goals are you developing?
2: Okay, um, so for Dark Ages two, uh, my the eras that I'm developing are the Golden Age piracy, the French Revolution, uh, the Necropolis of Huara, the Wild West, and the Thousand and One Nights eras. Um, the one I'm most excited about is Golden Age of piracy.
3: <laughs> that ties in well with uh, the Seventh Sea work i'm, I'm guessing
2: <laughs> yeah um no i just uh, i think it'll be a, a ton of fun we've got mage and geist uh together in that era and i think it'll be really interesting
3: that does sound really interesting
0: uh actually i do have a question about that uh while you're here i've i've always been interested in the the challenge of writing uh 1001 nights just because it's such a a large swath of history i think it's about 500 years that you're going to be covering and only so many pages so um how did you uh uh figure out or determine like what you know key touchstones you're going to be covering in history or what aspects were most crucial uh for uh discussing uh you know uh the arab world at that time
2: yeah so that was a challenge and i think um I've pretty much settled on the way we're gonna do that, uh, which is that ultimately the Thousand and One Nights, the stories themselves, and kind of the background of all of that, that very large period of time is a backdrop. Um, And the era itself is mostly gonna focus on probably a year or a few years of pivotal time. Uh, And then everything else is either a lead up to that and a backdrop or it's what's to come in the future and kind of leading up to something else. And the reason that we did that is, I mean, as you can imagine, with a dark era, you really need a present day, right? You need, what is the present day right now so that I can figure out how to run a game or how to play a character who's from that time. And I need that setting information and I need you know, information about what are the current events right now so that I can actually, uh, you know, so that I know what it's like to be that character in that time period. And so we really need to focus on that sort of one, um, pivotal year that one, the crux of the of the era and then everything else you know we'll either say here's here's the events that lead up to this time period for historical context and what's happened before or and then what comes after um you know what's about to happen where does this go so that say if you're playing a vampire and your game very well may span a couple of hundred years um here's what we say is the default present day but then here's what's to come as well so that if your game progresses or you want to set it a little bit into the future, you can do that. Um, and the Thousand My Nights stories themselves are part of that. They're part of that backdrop and and the what's to come.
0: All right, yeah, that's awesome to hear. One of the things that kind of surprised me about Dark Heroes 2 was the you know, the large swaths of history that you were going to be cover on uh, these different sections. Because I recall um, uh, Justin Achille mentioning back in the day that uh, Werewolf the Wild West was a, a huge challenge for him because it covered uh, about like a 30 year period. Um, so yeah, it's good to hear that, uh, you guys are really focusing in on these, like, these key turning points, uh, in history and, and setting material for the, you know, the different monsters they would be playing and not getting too bogged down in all of the, uh, historical, uh, minutia. So yeah, very cool stuff.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And actually, uh, from the first set of Dark Eras, um, Requiem for Regino was kind of the, the, uh, the model for that.
0: Nice. I like it. In that case, we'll move on to the final question that we ask all of our guests here, Megan. Megan, if you could be a household appliance, which would you be, and why?
2: (laughs) Um, (laughs) gosh, uh, you can
0: pick anything. Eddie Webb was an iPhone. I think it was a Martin that was like a cheese.
1: He was a cheese grater. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Um, <laughs> gosh,
0: <laughs> Monica. Monica Valentinelli was an Xbox controller. It can be anything you see oh, around I, you that I really like that. feels represents you.
2: I th- yeah, I, I might, I might, I might take a page out of Monica's book and go with my PlayStation Four. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right, excellence. Uh, just because uh, you like good high gra- high end graphics gaming.
2: Yeah, well, I use my PlayStation for everything. I use it for Netflix. I, I don't have cable television. I just watch Netflix and Hulu on my ps4 and mm. play video games and i basically just use it for every media i consume so
0: <laughs> yeah <laughs> nice excellent all right cool well i think that just about uh, wraps up our interview uh megan really appreciate you uh coming here on the show and uh taking us through uh the really cool stuff that's coming along with uh your work in general and also changing the lost second edition uh definitely good stuff um if there's, if there's any way that people want to get in contact with you, uh, do you have like a Twitter account that you recommend or anything like that?
2: I'm on Twitter at FitzMorigna, F-I-T-Z-M-O-R-R-I-G-N-A on Twitter. Um, and I'm also just Megan Fitzgerald on the Onyx Path forums if anybody is ever uh, on there.
0: And of course, uh, we are Darker Days Radio, and you can uh, check out our Facebook page, which is com slash radio. We have our Twitter account, which is at Darker Days Radio. We have a Google Plus page, uh, which we can link in the show notes. And of course, our website with all of our episodes is darker-days.org. Uh, Megan, again, thank you very much uh, for coming here on the show. Uh, definitely very cool stuff, and we're really excited to see how... Uh, this changeling kickstarter comes out
2: awesome thank you so much
0: yep and uh to all of our listeners out there thank you and good night this has been an episode of darker days radio Special thanks to Occam's Laser for the intro, outro, and new bumper music from their hit album, Nine Circles. Check out the rest of their work at occamslaser.bandcamp.com.